Welcome back. Today on the Freedom Pact, we are doing a very special episode into burnout with Dr. Tracy Marks. So before we go any further, we are trial running this episode for the Thursday slot. We did a poll on Instagram a few weeks ago and you guys said to us that you wanted episodes on Thursday. We always release episodes every Monday, that is without fail. But now we want to see how the Thursday slots go. So for the, for now, we're going to try to release two Thursday episodes per month. If it goes well, then we can keep releasing them. We can alternate with days. So just please let us know how that goes. We're always looking for constructive feedback for the show. If you have any feedback, any guests, any topics... Oh, if there's anything you'd love to discuss, if there's any problems you are facing, then please, please reach out to us. You can connect with us, freedompact at gmail.com. We read everyone, so please, guys, don't, don't be afraid to get in contact. But anyway, back to today's show. We are delighted to welcome Dr. Tracy Marks on. Dr. Marks is a psychiatrist who operates out of Atlanta, Georgia. I first stumbled upon Tracy on YouTube. If you were searching for mental health, mental wellness, it's pretty difficult not to find Tracy's channel, as her channel is one of the biggest ones on YouTube in that niche. Dr. Marks is also a regular contributor to sites like the Huffington Post. She's featured on Anderson Cooper. So, in this episode, we're going to dig deep into one of the most problematic areas that you, our listeners, have experienced or are experiencing. Burnout. We're going to look at how it happens, how to beat it, and also numerous other self-care strategies. I think it's really important to remember that as an entrepreneur, as a student, as an executive, as a CEO, your greatest asset is yourself and you need to take care of you. I hope that this episode goes some way to helping you with that. If you enjoyed this episode and you enjoy our, our work, then please, please leave us a review. This is the only ask that we have of you guys is please leave us a rating and a review. It helps us so much with the visibility of the show. Without any further ado, Dr. Tracy Marks, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Thank you for having me. It is such a privilege. When I was doing research into this, whenever I'm dealing with burnout in my own personal life, your YouTube channel, which can be found at Dr. Tracy Marks, T-R-A-C-E-Y on YouTube, has helped me significantly. This is a question that we get asked about all the time. I know it's something which is so prominent now. If I just ask you, what do you think that burnout really is? What, what sort of definition would you give to it? Well, let me preface it by saying that I do think there's kind of two levels of burnout. So there's the what people will commonly say, oh, I'm burnt out, which is more the transient, you've been working too hard, you've, you, you're just tired and you need to take a break and walk away for a minute. And then there's the true burnout that we think of more clinically, even though it's not a diagnosis, but 
um, the one that has a more lasting impact where people make, um, they either start having deteriorating in their functioning or they have a significant level of unhappiness that's sustained for a while. So with that kind of burnout, um, it's usually thought to have three parts to it, exhaustion, cynicism, and ineffectiveness. And the exhaustion is probably self-explanatory to most people that you're putting in a lot of hours, doing a lot of work, et cetera, um, and you're just physically tired and even mentally just not able to put have things clicking as well as they used to. But the, the probably the less obvious portion or part to this is the cynicism. And that's where you develop this, this, this negative outlook, not only on your job, but your life and your purpose and what's the point of all of this. And that's the part that really starts to erode at your ability to be effective and feel like you should even just keep going in the direction you're in. This is so interesting to me because when I think back, particularly over the last 18 months, just as you were saying that, it, it sort of made me think back to different times <laughs> in my relationship, different times when how the sort of cynicism aspect came into my home life with my friends. And I've never actually heard it put that way. So, so that's, that's really interesting. So if we look at say the second type of burnout, which I think primarily is what I think a lot of our audience will have experienced. How is this sort of created? How is this that second type of burnout created? Where does it stem from? Is there overload? Is it maybe self-imposed deadlines living against your own standards? What do you think it is? I think it has to do with putting too much time into doing things that don't make you happy. And, and actually, just to kind of be correct here, the person who pioneered the research in this is a, a woman named Christina Maslock. And she felt like that burnout started when you have this erosion in your engagement with your job. Um, you start to kind of get to the point where you're just not into this anymore. And then the reason that usually is the case is when... There's a poor fit between what you're doing and what you want to be doing, or there's all of these things that are that are put upon you that you're churning through that you're not getting out any pleasure out of. Or another example, the entrepreneur who's trying to see a result, trying to see a result, trying to see a result, putting in all this work, and you're just not getting much back from all that effort you're putting into it. So it's like you're just giving up your soul for no real gain. When you just said that, it made me think back to when I first started in a graduate job that I first undertook just straight out of university. And I was really trying to juggle my own projects as well as as well as this this graduate job, which was taking up an extraordinary amount of my time. Just as you're saying that, it, it sort of made me think that I felt completely out of alignment. I mm -hmm. So it was like I was torn between the job was demanding of me and then I was coming home and trying to follow an entrepreneurial path. And I think that really did push me to that, that burnout precipice because I felt just so out of line with myself 
Is yeah. that something which you you think is is a major thing in the burnout conundrum type thing? Yeah, you know, there's actually quite a bit of burnout among physicians, and in fact, to the point where um, the physician suicide is uh, kind of a bigger thing than people realize as far as its prevalence. But um, and I think what happens, you know, when I've seen studies and, and surveys on what what people attribute to their getting to the point of, of burnout, and it has to do with all of the administrative things that they have to do, the the documentation, the insurance authorizations, all this stuff that has nothing to do with seeing patients and practicing medicine. But yet you've got this this load of work now that's almost as much as this, the work that you want to do that's making you have to stay late or work on a weekend or something like that just to get it all done. But that stuff, um, it's almost like having a gun pointed to your head. I mean, other people make that stuff so much, so important that then you come into work each day and just kind of lose sight of, well, why am I here? And you're doing all this work and have put all this energy into stuff that you don't even like. If we're just looking at burnout, what do you think the initial, the very primary signs of burnout that we can just look out for? One sign would be looking at how you feel physically. So going back to the exhaustion element. So this is beyond just, say, feeling tired a couple of days or or even, I mean, we're actually, we're talking about physical and mental feeling of just everything's hard. You, you just don't feel physically energized and it may even be despite getting rest or taking or walking away for a little bit. So it's this feeling that you can't shake up. I just can't get up and do this another day. I know you said early signs, so it may not, you're not going to wake up one day and just say, well, I can't do it anymore today. But this kind of sense of it's just getting harder and harder for you to get up and do things. That's one. And then the as far as the mental piece, it would be more the seeing that you're 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 working slower, you're getting frustrated easily. Um, things seem harder than they used to. So example, you've got your regular things that you've got to do for the day and someone says, oh yeah, can you give me the date that we were supposed to get together? Well, okay, what does that involve? That involves maybe looking in your phone to look at the date, but that just seems like a burden to have to even take the time to go look up this date and then text this person the date. It's just one more thing in the course of your day. When, when it starts getting like that, where these little things just seem like they're they're swallowing you, I think those are some early signs that you're you're either headed toward burnout or part of the way there. I can most definitely resonate with some of those examples, but there. And one thing I actually I've been dying to ask you about this. I don't think I've ever actually mentioned it on the show, but this is something that I've personally experienced a lot of and whenever i feel as if i'm heading towards an episode of burnout i my mind just becomes like a layer of fog i think i think they call it like brain fog where i just cannot think clearly my mind is just foggy i don't I, so so what is going on in my mind at that point what what is happening 
So that's, that's a great way to describe it, um, brain fog. So when your mind gets overstimulated, you can get to where you can't process thoughts the same way. Um, you're not as sharp. You may or may not have memory problems, but so sometimes it can show up as just, oh yeah, what was that thing? And just kind of loss of word, we call it word finding difficulty. But in the more broad sense, it's more of just, a, I'm just, it's like you're kind of walking around literally in a fog. But one of the ways this can happen is not just from what we might think of the obvious of, oh, I'm putting in 80 hours this week or I'm staying up too late and not, and not getting enough sleep, but actually having too much time where you're just having to process and process and process and process. So one way that could look is you work your, your, your usual day, eight to six, let's just say, if you have to go to an office and work. And I see this a lot more with people who work at home because there's not a lot of boundaries between when you're working and when you're not working. But let's just say you work eight to six and you come home, then you're checking emails, maybe some, maybe you've got some um, clients in a different time zone and now is the time that you really need to check those but you don't think you're working because you're just sitting on the couch doing this or you stop that and then it's you're on Facebook or Instagram or you're responding to people's text messages and all of that and all of that is is thinking it's not just kind of um, autopilot type letting your mind relax so the more hard analysis and thinking that you do, that still work, even if you're sitting down doing it. And some people will do that all the way up until the time that they just fall off asleep. Instead of what I normally recommend for people is to make sure they always have at least an hour of wind down time before they go to bed. Very, very interesting. So what are potentially some of the more detrimental effects that it could possibly lead to? In addition to being ineffective and potentially missing deadlines and not, uh, not completing, not having your deliverables ready, things like that, so just kind of work inefficiency, um, it also affects you mentally when it comes to uh, making people irritable um, anxious, uh, this feeling of just kind of being on all the time can make you feel on edge. So that on edge feeling can result in not sleeping very well. So you don't get what is ideal, which is about seven to nine hours of sleep for an adult. So now you're, you're sleeping six or less, or it's broken up. Um, when those kinds of things happen, when you chronic sleep deprivation, not only then has the snowball effect of affecting your ability to remember things and work efficiently and think efficiently, but it has negative health effects as well. Um, it affects your, your sugar processing as far as your, your, sens your insulin sensitivity. So insulin resistance is what is behind type 2 diabetes. So that's not to say that if you don't sleep well, for two nights, you're going to have diabetes the next week. You know, it, it's, it's a chronic effect of this kind of not sleeping well, poor, um, poor eating habits, because uh, also 
when we don't sleep well, we can tend to crave um, sweets or fats or just or carbs. And then it's just, there's so many, it's, a, it's almost like a, a circle and you got to figure out where do you cut into the circle to kind of start undoing things. It's all tied up in, in one big circle of life kind of thing. And I assume that this probably ties in with where people, uh, they're working all the time. They're, they've maybe wired themselves on caffeine and other stimulants. And then it's time to go to bed and they've, they've worked themselves into the floor and they're just so exhausted. But then paradoxically, they can't fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They can't fall asleep or they fall asleep, but it's choppy sleep. So they wake up uh, several times. Um, and, uh, you know, another impact that's probably less obvious and I think a little bit more subtle is the impact it has on you and your relationships. There's only so much time in the day. Everybody gets 24 hours. So that's one thing we can't game. We can't just kind of get in a couple of more hours. So if you're always working, then there's no time left or very little time left to spend with the people who are important to you. And that, you know, and that, even if you're single, certainly there are other people in your life who are important to you and for whom you're important to them and they want to spend time with you. So working a lot and getting burnt out can, can also make you emotionally unavailable to people. So even if you force yourself to say, I'm going to, Okay, fine. I'll I'll go have coffee with you, but you're like distracted thinking about what you've got to do because you've got so many things to do. You're not really having a good quality interaction with that person. I would also add another indirect effect of this in relationships. It's just as you said. I was thinking back, and one thing I've noticed is when I'm personally burnt out, my sex drive the decreases exponential it's almost as if you know i'm some sort of robot i've tracked for a long time because one way to test your hormone levels how healthy you are is whether you wake up in the morning or not with an erection that tests your your hormone levels the quality of sleep all those different things and through an app i could probably point to different weeks in which i've been burnt out through a decrease in my sex drive. Is that also another effect? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. And I'm trying not to be immature by laughing at the robot thing, but I couldn't help myself. <laughs> but definitely sex drive. And thanks for bringing that up. Burnout, stress, overwork, anxiety can affect sex drive. That's interesting that you say that a measurement that you've noticed being a man is waking up, whether or not you wake up with an erection. Actually, I didn't know that. <laughs> I guess because I don't get into that level of minutia when I'm talking with men patients about this. I just know that they'll know that their sex drive is down. But yeah, that's that's certainly, I think, one of probably one of the effects that maybe we tend not to focus on as much because it kind of falls into that more gray area of relationships and how are we relating to people and what's the quality of our relationships kind of thing. Something that I would love to take this on to is 
in preparation for this interview, I started, as I always do, I always look through academic studies. And I found a study by us, a 2018 study from the Journal of International Medicine. I'll just I'll just summarize with the abstract. And it says levels in the cerebral cortex were associated with job related burnout. Findings suggest that long-term job-related burnout may lead to behavioral and psychiatric disorders. So I would love to know what are the what's the sort of neurochemical effect in my mind? Is my dopamine fried? Is my cortisol going through the roof? What's going on inside? Yeah, so first stage would be your cortisol going through the roof because that's your stress hormone and And it's a hormone that's designed to help mobilize the troops, so to speak. So if a bear walks into your room, something happens, someone ran into your room with a gun, um, your heart rate is going to, is going to speed up and you're going to be ready to run. Well, if you're under stress, you can have that, that same feeling of ready to run with no obvious stressor in front of you other than the kind of more general stresses that you have with your work and your life and all of that sort of thing. So the the fight or flight response is supposed to be an intense temporary response that resolves when the danger is gone. But when that threat is always there, then you have these chronically elevated levels of cortisol, your blood pressure can go up, you you have an increased resting heart rate. And then when you start to get to the mental effects, that's when people can start to not only have anxiety, but tip over into getting depressed. Certainly burnout can feel like depression, but people can also go all the way over into getting depressed. And with that, we see lowering effects or depletions in the levels of serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine, which are all brain chemicals associated with mood. Just looking at the ineffectiveness, which you talked about earlier, I know this is sort of turned into a therapy session for myself, but one, <laughs> okay. but I, I remember this very vividly, and I've, I'm not really an anxious person. I, I've never really suffered with anything related to this, but I remember when I went through one one burnout episode i remember i was standing in sainsbury's which is which is just a supermarket maybe the equivalent to a walmart in america and i remember it was lunchtime and i was looking at different bottles of water and i just started freaking out because i remember in my mind it was like i've got to make another decision and it felt mm-hmm. as if i was suffering from a sort of decision fatigue where i was coming home and and say someone would ask me, do you want to go out to eat? And I remember just thinking to myself, I was like, I just really don't want to have to choose another thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've actually not heard anyone talk about this before, but when we were just talking about it, it just it's just all sort of coming back to me now. Is decision fatigue, is that a real thing or was that a symptom of something else? I think that was a symptom of the foggy thinking, the mental overload, because when you're mentally overloaded like that, yeah, everything becomes hard. Um, Going back to the example I gave about someone just asking you to remind them of a date. And that means you've got, it feels like 50 steps just to retrieve that date and get back to them. Whereas 
if you weren't that overloaded, you'd have the mental space or mental capacity to just kind of push it out real quickly and not have it feel overwhelming to you. It's kind of like the RAM, how much RAM do you have in your computer? If you don't have very much and you've got a bunch of programs open, everything's slow. But if you get the Mac Daddy computer with all this RAM, then you can do all of these things. But we all end up running out of RAM eventually. What do you think are some of the, quote unquote, the fake cures that people think are antidotes to burnout? So coming from a student background myself, I remember people would try to beat burnout by just hardwiring themselves through caffeine. I've seen people thinking that they can get ahead of their schedule by not sleeping enough, going into, you know, a type of monk mode of cutting off all contact with the outside world, Adderall. What are some of the fake cures, if you will, that that you have seen? And what effect can they also have from a negative point of view? Well, you're going to get me on a soapbox with the whole stimulants and Adderall and performance enhancement. All those things are just more steps down into the grave because they just force you to do more than what your body is capable of doing. And it might work for a temporary period of time. Stimulants can make anybody work more or think faster or stay awake but your body is organic tissue that has certain needs and it's gonna it's gonna get what it needs even if you don't want to give it what it needs so if you're if you make yourself not sleep you will eventually crash and burn it just doesn't you just can't get something from nothing I can't tell you how many people I've seen come to me and they may, they may be in their like mid forties and are saying they're, they're having trouble focusing and, you know, they were, they were the star producer at work and now they're slipping and they just, and they're coming because they want Adderall. And I will say Adderall is the last thing you need. Yes. You can, you can take something like this to push yourself to do more, but you're not doing more now because you are, you're not capable of doing more. You just don't have the capacity to do all these things that you want to do. So the solution is to take away some of the things that you are able to do so that you can do what's left better rather than trying to kind of string it out and just do everything no matter the cost. So impressed by how clearly you can communicate you think, and I noticed it through your YouTube channel. And one thing which I noticed is how clearly the thinking must be to yourself to then have to communicate it to others. So I'm so impressed by that. Oh, thank um, you. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. So if we're just staying on, on caffeine, how much caffeine would you say that you would recommend? Is there a safe <laughs> amount? Is there a time that we should cut it off? What, what would you recommend? A moderate amount of caffeine is still looked at as beneficial maybe going too far. Uh, I guess beneficial when it comes to optimizing your your thinking and your alertness kind of thing. And what is what's moderate about 200 milligrams? So really what amounts to about one to possibly two cups, but 
what's a cup? Well, it's not a big 20 ounce thing that I don't know if you have. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if you have Starbucks there, but a big venti thing is not one serving. It's probably about a third of that amount. So someone drinking a cup, maybe two max of coffee a day for estimation's sake, you know, maybe an eight ounce serving of coffee. Um, And it depends on how concentrated it is. But that is that is fine. And they've even seen other health benefits to caffeine. And I don't know if if most people know this, but actually the way caffeine works to keep you alert is it actually works on the histamine chemical system in your brain. So we think of histamine as something that is active or related to allergies. So, and that is the case from the neck down. From the neck down, when you increase histamine levels, you get your immune response to kick in to something that's that's it's trying to protect you from. And when it when you overdo it that way, then people have allergic reactions, et cetera, et cetera. But from the brain up or from the neck up, histamine is something that keeps you alert and awake. So that's why when you take an antihistamine that crosses the blood-brain barrier, it makes you sleepy. So caffeine works on that system of promoting or increasing histamine levels so that you stay alert and awake. If you go too far with it though, you can, from the neck down, get the effect of increased heart rate and feeling anxious and jittery, et cetera. That's really interesting. And if we look at caffeine as a whole and why someone may take it, do you think that a a problem that is currently in society is this idea of instant gratification and this idea that everybody wants everything now? And I just recently watched this Tony Robbins documentary on Netflix. Uh, I think it's called I Am Not Your Guru. And there's a quote in it that he says, as a society, we overestimate what we can do in one year and we underestimate what we can do in 10. Do you think that a problem facing society is that in our pursuit of our goals, we are sort of sacrificing our health in the now to try to sort of speed up the process when it may not be necessary? For sure. I think that um, this is another one of my soapbox that I will not stand up on at the moment, (laughs) but it does bother me something um, a few steps before that, uh, before the kind of long-term outlook, but the shorter term, I call it fake urgency, where where everything seems urgent just because we don't want to wait. It's not because it's urgent. It's just someone just doesn't want to have to wait. So this gets perpetuated with instant messaging and texting and and emails. And, you know, you send an email to someone and if they don't respond to you within a couple hours, it's like they're not they're not responding. It's like, well, what if they were busy and I'm not that young. And back in my day, we had, you know, before we had cell phones and all that, if someone called you, you had to be home and pick up the phone. There wasn't answering machines when I was younger. So, and we were home to pick up the phone and answer the phone. Now with FaceTime and all of this, it's like 
instant access. And I think despite the conveniences of that, it has perpetuated a problem of having extremely short attention spans and high levels of expectations of other people's availability. So when people impose that on you, and, it, and it's society-wide, there's just, now we've got this whole other level of what we're expected to do, and then going back to your uh, question of what we're expecting or expecting of ourselves to achieve in a certain amount of time. The bar is just right here in front of us instead of being able to tolerate the bar being several years out. We've had people email us, 18-year-old kids saying just how desperate they are to make these big goals and dreams that they have. And they're speaking as if if it's a life or death thing. You know, you're, yeah. you're 18 years old. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> how important do you think in terms of dealing with burnout that saying no is because obviously when you say yes to one thing you're sort of saying indirectly no to something else which could be self-care or something like that how important do you think saying no is i think it's critically important and i think you have to be able to step back and really kind of give yourself a talking to as to lining up your priorities, what's important, what's not important, and being able to accept that when you say no, there will be people who will be unhappy about that. But as you said, saying yes to them means saying no to something. It's either saying no to yourself, no to your family and kids, or no to, to your sleep. But there's there's going back to the 24 hours in the day, there's only 24. And at least, let's just say even number eight of those, you need to be asleep. And maybe two of those, you need to be eating dinner, preparing for sleep, relaxing, da da da. So 10 hours out of your 24 hours is not usable for anything but you. So you're left with 14 hours left. And if you've got to work for eight hours and then drive for uh, another hour, that's nine. So you're not left with much is the moral of the story. And so it's really important for you to prioritize how you're going to spend your free time. And everyone wants something. And even if they're not trying to be mean about it and take from you, that's just how it is. People want stuff you have to be the master of your time because other people are not going to look out for that for you. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you this because I know you're busy. I mean, some, some friends may say that, but still people will just ask and you have to be the one to say, no, I can't because it's just not a good idea for me to do that. Are there any ways in which you have found that you can say no in a way which doesn't hurt the other people's feelings and also stays true to yourself. Like I'll just give an example, which I usually say is I don't know my schedule, so I don't want to say that I'm going to commit. It's a no now, but if I change my mind, could I come back to you with a yes? And I always find that that always leads. It never hurts their feelings. And it also in any way I can fulfill that then I can go and do it. So do you have any sort of ways in which you would, in which you could say that no to others? 
That's great. I like your way. <laughs> but um, I do a similar thing, which essentially, if you deconstruct that, is just making the person or communicating to the person that the reason you can't do it is because of you and not because of them. So if someone asks me for something and I'll try and, and frame it as I'm just not able to do this or I'm I'm sorry. And I do. I, I will say I'm sorry. And I know some people will say, stop apologizing. I've seen some YouTube videos like that. Stop apologizing. Da, da, da. But that is a way to soften the blow of saying no to someone. And it gives them it can leave them feeling as though, OK, it has nothing to do with me. This person just isn't capable or they don't have the time or something, but they will take me under consideration if they become available. I like that. I like your approach and I do a similar thing for that very reason. Wonderful. So I think we've done such a fantastic job of just wrapping up this topic of burnout. So if I just say to you right now, and then if we just sort of move on to a practical sort of route, and I would ask, what are some of the most effective best care practices? I found that when it comes to dealing with the course of the day, so you're actually on the battlefield, so to speak, um, doing your thing, whether it's working in your job, working in your business, or doing a bunch of stuff because you're a stay-at-home mom, let's just say. Um, setting time boundaries, and that can look different ways to different people. If you have the kind of job or work where you're getting lots of emails and phone calls, um, a suggestion would be to, to chunk it out. So you check emails or phone calls from this time to this time, and then you have another chunk of your day where you just let all that pile up and you actually implement or work on the things that you need to work on because you can't do work and emails at the same time. I mean, unless your job is nothing but returning emails, but um, at some point you've actually got to get some, get work done on things that you've been told to do. Then you can have another chunk of time where you are checking emails or, or interacting with people. And it's the same thing kind of with meetings. If you have that level of control of scheduling meetings, you have a certain time where you do the meetings, and then during the time where you are not either responding to emails or all those external distractions is what they are, you just you put your head down, put the blinders on and know that you will get back to those things. But you are just going to solely focus on the task at hand. That's one suggestion. Another is prioritizing your sleep. So instead of sleep being this thing that. You just get what's left over at the end of the day. You block out. You are going to make sure that you get between seven and nine hours. And that might take some work. That's a whole nother topic. But that might take some work to get to where you can get that amount of sleep if you're not getting that. But where you plan out your day. I used to say that preparation for sleep starts in the morning because how you spend your day matters as to whether or not you are going to sleep that night and how you're going to sleep that night. So you can't just kind of haphazardly go through your day doing this and that and blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, it's 11 o'clock, turn off the light. 
So you plan for your sleep. So you set a bedtime. I'll ask numerous people, so what time you go to bed? Well, it depends. That should not be the answer unless you have the kind of job that you work night, you work different shifts aside, and those people sleep poorly generally. But um, if you if you have that control, you set a bedtime, and then an hour before you start your wind down to to go to sleep, and you make that a priority every day that this is bedtime. The third thing is to also make sure you work in a certain amount of exercise and the ideal amount um, or minimum amount, I guess I shouldn't say ideal, minimum amount would be 30 minutes, five days a week. And that's 30 minutes of vigorous aerobic type exercise. That's kind of what's generally recommended uh, for good health. Um, and then if you do resistance training on top of that, that would be on top, but 30 minutes of uh, aerobic level, fast walking, jogging, running, exercise, bike, whatever, a day. And then the last thing would be to try and find, I would say at least 10 minutes you could start with of time, potentially in the middle of the day to decompress, it's, especially if you have a very hectic schedule, find a way to get at least 10 minutes each day to decompress, to take a break. And ideally, it could be in the middle of the day if you have a very hectic day to just kind of reboot your mind. That 10 minutes could go a long way in making, say, the rest of your day more efficient and effective. It's kind of like rebooting your computer. Um, if you, in, in that 10 minutes could be it doesn't have to be deep meditation. It could be, and that would be great if you are already in the practice of doing meditation or um, easy ways or things like using um, the Calm app and Headspace. They have guided meditations that you could listen to, but it could also be listening to music. It's not answering emails or, <laughs> or I don't even think checking Facebook for that matter, because I think that still has a certain amount of emotionality to it that's not necessarily relaxing for people. But having a kind of a 10 minute reboot break in the middle of the day to chop up the intensity of the day. So interesting that you mentioned sleep and that sort of idea of swing shifts of work in different times in regards to the sleep, because we asked our listeners to send in questions and we always pick a question which we feel could be prevalent to whoever it is that we're interviewing. So I've got a question here from Cal. He says, hi, Dr. Marks. I'm currently working a rotating shift schedule in my job. This means that I'm working morning, afternoons and nights over a two week period. My work schedule means that I'm consistently waking up at different times. And I'm often not sleeping for very long periods of times. Whilst I do enjoy my job, I am starting to worry. Do I have any reason to be concerned about my health? Sadly, yes. I, I just don't have, I wish I had a better answer for that. But we know that, that shift workers in general have poor health and poor outcomes when they do it for years. And particularly when it's 
shifting shifts. So instead of it being just a regular, you always work the night shift and you get used to sleeping during the day, it's the, it's exactly how he described it of part of the time it's this and part of the time it's that. That wreaks havoc on your body clock. And it can get to where your sleep is so poor because your, your, your body just cannot get used to a schedule. And just like you may be too young for children, but if you have kids, they need schedules. Little toddlers, if they get off their schedule, they get fussy and all that. And even though we grow out of that um, as adults, as far as how we respond to not having a schedule, mentally, we still need a schedule and we can get feel very disrupted, similar to the toddler, um, when we get off track and off schedule. So the body doesn't respond well to that. And long-term, poor sleep, particularly from shift work, can result in lots of uh, health problems. And that's something um, you could look up um, as far as shift work and health, negative health consequences. It, it, it's not good, unfortunately. And I think if, if there were a way that you could, I don't know, have some more control over the timing of it so that you're not shifting around, perhaps it could be salvageable. But that kind of schedule, I think, is something that's best kept as a temporary short-term thing. Just one quick Google search just see for yourself the long-term effects is numerous studies done on it as you see so cal go and get a different job <laughs> yeah i hate to say it that way but yeah. basically yes <laughs> so another thing in which we were wondering is just in terms of this whole health kick which we're on are there any specific supplements are there any vitamins any probiotics capsules are there anything which you could recommend to our audience which could give off some sort of positive effects i am a proponent of fish oil i think that um well omega-3 fatty acids um not everybody um eats fit or not everyone for the vegetarians out there there's algae sources of fish oil so algae sources of omega-3 fatty acids. Fish oil is the way you can get it in the most concentrated form. Omega-3 fatty acids are anti-inflammatory, so they're very good not only for the brain, but also for your body as far as helping fight disease. Um, a lot of the foods that we eat have omega-6 fatty acids, and Omega-6 fatty acids are part of the building blocks for the inflammatory system. So we end up with a lot of that, kind of like your offense, and we need a defense on, on the other side of it to match up. And we get less omega-3 fatty acids than we do omega-6. So to kind of create more of a balance, omega-3 fatty acids are a very good addition to your diet. And that could be achieved by eating fish. Um, I think the recommended is twice a week for heart health, but certainly taking the supplements is the more efficient way to get more of it. And then the other thing that I'm a proponent of is probiotics, because I do think that your gut health has a lot to do with not only your body health, but even your brain health. We're seeing more and more illnesses, inflammatory-based 
like depression, we think has some inflammatory base to it as far as the cause, um, being linked to the gut and your gut health. We don't have a clear kind of line drawn between gut and brain enough to say, okay, if you do this, it will treat this. I mean, it's not that direct yet, but we're kind of headed in that direction of seeing diet and your gut health having more of an effect on your mood and your overall mental health. So probiotics is not just probiotic pills. There's good bacteria. The probiotics essentially getting a dose of healthy bacteria for your gut, which is necessary in the gut. And there's lots of things that we eat like processed foods and sugars and things that feed and produce unhealthy bacteria. So we need a balance, just like we, I was talking about with the fatty acids, we need a balance with the gut in your, in, sorry, with the gut bacteria as well. So sources of getting good bacteria back down into your gut are probiotic pills, but also things like yogurt, sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, kefir, those are all fermented foods that can have the same or similar result. You do have to take more of them um, than you would a pill, but it's always good to have and not just rely on one source of the bacteria, but to get um, multiple sources. So you may want to take a probiotic in addition to having yogurt from time to time or sauerkraut. We actually did an episode with Dr. Will Bolshevitz on gut health and the microbiome. And we had a number of people reach out to us after the episode saying that the the research which you talked about, but they're, you know, linking the gut to mental health. They were they were saying that that from that episode they were making remarkable changes to their diet, cutting out red meat, nor eating a cheaper type of meat. All these different things, just because this new research came out is just so, so interesting. And it I'll be, is. Uh, and I'll be so interested to see you know, where it goes. So thank you for all those recommendations. And I know one thing which you are a huge proponent of on your YouTube channel is light therapy. And I think this is typically used to treat uh, seasonal affective disorders. I was just wondering, not the same, but obviously slightly different is the sun. And the reason I ask is because a few episodes back, we had Nick Little Hales, who's a sleep expert, and all episode, he just hammered this idea of getting out into the sun. He's saying that research will be coming out. He's be saying it's more important than we could ever imagine. <laughs> How important do you think the sun is to our wellness and getting outside? Vitamin D is pretty much, the sun is, is pretty much our, the main way that we get vitamin D, which some people will consider vitamin D to be more of a hormone with the way that it works in the body than a vitamin, but that's neither here nor there. Suffice it to say, it's very important. And the way that the predominant way that it's made is through the skin and the rays from the sun creating a reaction in your skin, and then you then have vitamin D to use for your body. And just spending 20 minutes in the sun is the equivalent of getting like 
a couple of shots of 5,000 units of, of vitamin D or, or 50,000 units of vitamin D. But um, I mean, the numbers are high. I don't have the exact numbers, but the point is, is that just a small amount of regular of sunlight regularly can go a long way in keeping your vitamin D levels up. The other part about sunlight is that it is one of the key factors that affects your the timing of your body clock. So melatonin production is triggered by sun, or I guess it's the inverse of that. When we when you no longer have sunlight, then you get the release of melatonin in your brain, and then that tells your body, okay, it's time to be asleep. And then when the sun comes up, we you cut off melatonin production. That stops melatonin production in your brain. And that's how we would know when to sleep and when not to sleep if we had no electricity. Well, that whole body clock issue in your circadian cycle is super important, not only just for sleep, but just body rhythms in general. So when you get your body rhythm off, that's how you can end up with not only sleep problems, but other physical problems. So how important is sunlight? It not only affects vitamin D levels, it affects your body clock as well in your circadian cycle. And that also has indirect effects on your mood. So yes, people with seasonal affective disorder are more sensitive to sunlight and can become depressed when they don't get enough of it and can become excited or happy and some people overexcited when they get too much of it. Amazing. We just move on now to our last three questions. Are there any societal rules that you love to break? You know, I'm a rule follower. So I would say I don't, it, it's not my personality to think about, okay, I'd love to just stick it to them on this one. <laughs> I think that when it comes to, I, I had to think, I have to think about this differently. Rather than it being rules that I want to break, there are expectations that I don't mind breaking. Um, and there, and it's pretty much, it's kind of all, all in my own head. When I think someone is expecting me to behave a certain way or have certain opinions or yield to their opinions. And since my personality is one that for years, I, I leaned more toward the people pleasing side of the fence. If someone disapproves of something, then, oh, I guess I won't do that anymore. Whereas now as, as I'm older, I have my opinion about something, and if someone disagrees, then we can just disagree. And I think I've probably thickened up my skin from being on YouTube and getting angry uh, comments and things like that. And you know, my thought, my feeling is, if you don't like it, you don't have to watch. Rather than 10 years ago, when I started my YouTube channel, actually 10 years ago, I was scared off easily by uh, people's negative opinions and saying, you don't need to be doing this or that and the other. Say, oh, okay. I guess I won't. And then, you know, then I wouldn't post for years. Well, what a really interesting answer. And, uh, I would say I'm sort of a, uh, a recovering people pleaser myself. And I would add to that, that there may be people listening to this that, uh, carrying other people's burdens, expectations, guilt, 
it's not your place to carry anyone else's problems. So, are there any books which have greatly impacted your life? Hmm. Probably the biggest one has been the Bible. That's pretty much the only nonfiction book I read. I'm not a nonfiction reader because any other things that I read, I guess I should say, uh, include, in addition to the Bible, would be um, journals and things, medical journals, where I need to keep up with my uh, continuing med medical education. But because of all of that, when I'm done at the end of my day, I just want to escape. Uh, so I read fantasy and things like that, espionage, thrillers. So I wouldn't say any of those seriously impacted my life. I just read them for entertainment. Brings us on to our last question. If you could distill your life lessons or a message that you would love to share with the world in one short but impactful statement, what would your message be? My message would be that well, it stems, and I'll, I'll make this short, my, it stems from a quote from Maya Angelou, which is my favorite. She said, uh, this is paraphrased, that people will forget what you said and forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And my extension of that is, what's more important, being right and smart or having relationships? I think that the real currency of our lives is relationships. And at the end of the day, and at the end of your career, that's all you will have left is the connections that you have with people. And so as you go along the course of life, you can either build your life in a way where you're right, smart, and successful at the expense of others, or you can have a little bit less and have relationships at the end of the day. Where can our audience connect with you, Tracy? The main place I am these days is on YouTube. I love YouTube. I love watching it, and I love making mental health videos there. And uh, I interact in the comments and whatnot. So my YouTube channel is my name, and it's Dr. Tracy Marks, T-A-R-C-E-Y, and, um, and my last name, M-A-R-K-S. Everything will be linked below. Tracy, we cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. It's been such a, a fantastic episode and your insights have been amazing. So we can't thank you enough for coming on. Thank you. I really enjoyed this.